Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're talking with the historian Neil Ferguson about the politics of doom, catastrophe, and all the bad things. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, a literary magazine full of politics, and a political magazine full of literature. Listeners can subscribe at a special rate of just £1 an issue by using the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. Helen and I spoke to Neil Ferguson about a week ago. Uh, he was in California. It was morning his time. It was evening our time. He had children to get ready for school. You might just hear that in the background, a very, very small version of Doom. We cover a lot in this conversation, all the different varieties of catastrophe from war to famine to climate change. But we started with the obvious place. How does the current pandemic compare to pandemics of the past? So Neil, in this book, you set the pandemic against both the long history of pandemics and also the bigger history of other kinds of disasters and catastrophes, wars, famines, and so on. Come on to the other ones in a bit. But on the pandemic to pandemic comparison, you make the point that COVID in many ways for you is more like the so-called Asian flu, 57, 58, than the, the big one, the Spanish flu of 1918-19. Is that just a question of scale? Are we just talking about this as a numerical comparison? Or do you think that the comparison holds in other ways? Well, I think you have to start with the numbers. And if you look back to 1918-19, which was the pandemic most often referred to last year when people were trying to get a handle on this, 39 million people, we think, died in that pandemic. And if you up that to a 2020 population, that would be 160 million. And we've only just passed the 3 million mark. It's closer in that sense to 1957-58 when somewhere between 700,000 1.5 million people died, which would be between 2 and 4 million today. So I think COVID's going to be worse than that because clearly it's not over, but it's not going to be as bad as 1918-19 under any conceivable scenario. But it's not just, I think, a matter of, of raw numbers, though clearly when one's writing a book about disaster, you have to kind of deal with the numbers. It's also important to remember that back in 1918-19, they were far less well able to contend with a pandemic like the so-called Spanish influenza. Uh, medical science was in a much more primitive state. They couldn't figure out a vaccine for that uh, influenza virus. Whereas in 57-58, thanks to a brilliant man named Morris Hillman, as well as thanks to advances that had been in medical science, they got to a vaccine really quickly uh, for the Asian flu. And that was an important reason why the pandemic was brought under control, particularly in the United States. So I think that's an important point of resemblance. And I'll, I'll add a, a final observation. The challenge in the initial stage of the pandemic was very similar. As I was reading the 57-58 literature, I was really struck by how they get reports of a new virus in Hong Kong. Initially, it turns out to have come from mainland China, and they have to scramble to work out what to do as it spreads globally with comparable speed to COVID-19. So that feels like a much more familiar story than 1918-19, which was actually mostly initially spread by troop ships. 
and began in the United States, because that's one of the strange things about 1918-19. The first cases appear to have been on in American military bases. So I think 57-58 is a much better point of comparison, but one hardly ever heard it mentioned last year. Just going to ask you, Neil, what you would make of the thought that actually there isn't really anything that we can compare with because of the fact that the worldwide collective reaction was so different than anything that had been tried in the face of a pandemic before. So we have to compare the numbers of people who died and the way in which the, the disease spread under conditions in which effectively good chunks of the world economy closed down simultaneously. And isn't there a possibility that regardless of the comparison with the vaccine, which I think is quite interesting, that our economic response and the fact that governments had the faith to do that economically rather than thinking that there would be an economic collapse just takes us into a different position than anyone's been before? Well, I think it's true to say that we had an option that they did not have in 1957, which was to do lockdowns, to shut down economic and social life. And that was possible because of the internet, which they clearly didn't have in 1957. In fact, they they didn't have complete telephone coverage in 1957, even in the United States. And very few people, therefore, in 1957 could have worked from home. And that's why there wasn't any real discussion of that possibility. They recognized that life would have to go on, that they couldn't close the economy down, and therefore that the virus would spread very rapidly through the population. So I do think you're right that that's big difference. But what struck me in a lot of the discussion is that people have overlooked the fact that that option enabled us to do things that will have many, many unintended consequences. That we went from sitting around January, February, first half of March, not doing terribly much, to to shutting everything down very drastically from mid-March on both sides of the Atlantic, and then keeping schools in many parts of the United States closed for a tremendously long time. Public schools in California have been closed for essentially a year. We administered an enormous supply shock to the economy and then offset it with massive government spending on a scale unprecedented in peacetime and enormous monetary expansion as well. Again, we don't quite know what the consequences of of those things will be. So we had an option that didn't really exist in previous pandemics. And we exercised it mainly because we'd failed to contain the initial outbreak in the way that they did succeed in doing in in countries like Taiwan and South Korea. In my view, the correct way to think about this is that lockdowns were a last ditch near panic response that was necessitated by a terrible failure in the initial phase of the outbreak. And it was a very blunt instrument to use. It's wrong to think of this as a choice between lockdown or letting the virus rip, and that was the choice. There was a much better set of options available in January, which included ramping up testing, digital contact tracing, isolating the infected, all the things that the Taiwanese did, which as a result led COVID to cause 12 deaths in Taiwan in total to date. But we in the West failed to take those steps and were driven to the lockdown, A, because we kind of had lost control of the virus, and B, because we could. And we previously could not have done, as you rightly say, such drastic reductions in mobility, because previously people could not work from home in the way that that we can. When I think about 1819, the Spanish flu, I think of a point that you make throughout your book, this is a wider point about calamities in general, that they operate according to a power law, that there are a few really big ones. 
And then there are lots of little ones. So when it comes to war, people tend on the whole either to die in the really big wars or there's a terrible attrition of lots and lots of very small conflicts. The scale of the 1819 flu, it's almost unimaginable. It's very hard to wrap your head around 30 million, 50 million people dying. And yet the experience of it was incredibly micro. I mean, people were dying at home on the whole. There wasn't a kind of collective experience of it. And what seems different from that to this one is that the pandemic itself does fit that pattern. The individual tragedies are individual tragedies, and then the numbers are almost unimaginable. But lockdown has happened in that middle level. Lockdown has been a national, a local collective phenomenon. And its political impact is so striking, not because of the disease, but because of the response. The response is somewhere in that middle zone. Is that fair that that's the difference here? Yeah, two points prompted by that. The first is maybe one should explain to listeners what a power law is, because I don't think that that's in common parlance yet. The key here is just the distribution. Now, if we looked at human heights or road accidents, there's a kind of normal bell curve distribution. There's an average human height, and we're all quite close to it. And the frequency of automobile accidents is also quite ex-ante, predictable. That's how insurers make their Money, But things like pandemics or wars or earthquakes or wildfires aren't like that. If you plot the distribution of pandemics, you don't get a bell curve. If you actually use logarithmic scales, you get a straight line, meaning that there are a very small number of of huge pandemics and lots and lots of things that are so small they barely figure in the historical record. And the same is true of of wars. That's an immediately obvious point when you think about the distribution of wars in the last couple of hundred years. You've got these two massive wars, the world wars, and then lots of little wars with really quite small body counts. So this is the challenge that we face. Most disasters are distributed according to power laws, and that makes it impossible for us to attach probabilities ex ante to the probability of a colossal earthquake near where I'm sitting on the San Andreas fault line. We just can't know. The second point is that when we're trying to assess the historical impact or the political impact of a disaster, the body count is not actually the most important thing, strange though that may seem. If you take the 1957-58 Asian flu, it killed about the same proportion of the world's population as COVID has so far, which is not 0.04%. But it's not really remembered. And even the people who lived through it have sort of hazy memories of the experience. And that suggests that the body count isn't really the key The First World War killed a lot of people, a lot more than COVID, but I don't think its historical significance was the the number of deaths on the, the battlefield. Its historical significance came from all the consequences, the cascade of other related disasters, most obviously the Bolshevik Revolution, that followed from it, the disintegration of the empires on the side of the the central powers. And I think that's the way to think about this historically. A disaster can kill a lot of people and somehow be forgotten if it doesn't have a cascade of consequences. The Titanic was not the worst shipping disaster in history by any means, but it's the best remembered because its consequences, the way in which it was reported, the way in which it became part of popular culture, made it historically significant. I think the Titanic's an interesting example because in itself, the sinking of that ship didn't actually really have consequences. It's the dramatic story of the Titanic and it's the the humbling of the ship on its maiden voyage that was supposed to you know be unsinkable. It's because it in the telling of it, it seems to capture something about the human condition 
Whereas the First World War is an instance where, as you say, it's the huge economic and geopolitical and political fallout of it that turns it into something that becomes entrenched in consciousness. I think that the parallel with the pandemic is it does two things. In the one hand, it looks to us in the West anyway, like a story about our hubris, because it's not something that we had on our radar, or many people, I should say, had on their radar could happen, even though some people clearly did understand that it could. But then there's something also about the collective experience of lockdown that means that it will stay in, I think, everybody's consciousness who's lived through it. I think that's right. I mean, we will remember not so much the mortality as the experience of lockdown, because the mortality will, in fact, have affected a relatively small percentage of most societies. But everybody was affected by the lockdowns. And that, I think, is part of the story, to say nothing of the fact that the lockdowns had a great many unintended consequences, which I think we haven't fully figured out yet. I mean, the impact on young people who were not especially at risk from the disease will turn out, I think, to be one of the great unintended consequences of the pandemic, the psychological ill effects. Larry Summers and David Cutler did this paper towards the end of last year, where they tried to work out what the actual cost of COVID would be. And they came up with a figure north of 90% of US GDP. This is the cost to the United States alone. And that's factoring in things like long COVID and, and the other costs. That That's a much bigger hit than the contraction of the economy that occurred last year, which is only about 3.5%. So I think we're at the early stages of doing a full accounting for this disaster. But when we do, we'll find that lockdowns had a great many costs, as well as the obvious benefit that they had of slowing down the spread of the virus. And, and that's why I think uh, historians and economists, and I hope also public health officials, will spend a long time picking over this this disaster and trying to figure out what we got wrong. Because I'm pretty sure that we got things wrong. It's just that we have to figure out what those were. And there's another scale question here, and you talk about this, that where the response was most successful to this point anyway, smallness of scale seems to have been an advantage. I mean, it's not universally true, of course, but relatively speaking, smaller nations, some smaller nations did better. And we are now seeing that some of the largest nations, China, of course, being the exception have done particularly badly. Is there a relationship, not in terms of the scale of the disaster itself, but of the response that means that small is beautiful? I wondered about that early on. It wasn't that great a correlation. There was a thesis that I remember being tossed around a year ago, did it help to be an island? That turned out really not to be meaningful. What made Taiwan and South Korea, which is actually quite a a big country and and Israel successful, because Israel was pretty successful except for a spike last summer, was that they are, for obvious reasons, generally paranoid. They have reasons to worry about a lot of different forms of threat from their neighbours. And that, I think, is why they were quick on the draw. Taiwan was terrifically quick to identify the threat, didn't believe Beijing's assurances that there was no human-to-human transmission, had in place a plan to ramp up testing, had thought about contact tracing, and was able to act with tremendous nimbleness in response to the crisis. I think the countries of the Western world, the democracies, regardless of their size, were pretty slow to realise what was happening and shared, to varying degrees, a common fate 
and it didn't terribly matter who was president or prime minister, there was a fundamental failure at the level of public health to see, I think, the lessons of SARS and MERS, that's part of it. I mean, the South Koreans had certainly thought a lot, as of the Taiwanese, about SARS and MERS, which were the original coronavirus epidemics. They'd never gone global because those viruses were so deadly, but they'd thought through the implications. And I think, unfortunately, public health bureaucracies in the Western world were prepared for an influenza pandemic. They'd had a sort of dry run in 2009 with swine flu, which hadn't really been a biggie. And they were, I think, therefore not ready for the particular form that this pandemic took. So size wasn't really the key. I think it was more whether you were quick on the draw. And the countries that have reasons to feel paranoid stand out as among the most successful. Although New Zealand is not an especially paranoid place, is it? Well, in New Zealand, remoteness definitely helped. Yeah, I mean, that was a yeah, remoteness and size question, I think. Yeah. Though Australia is big and did pretty well. Australia, it's big geographic. It doesn't actually have that many people, one must bear in mind. But it is unquestionably the case that controlling travel was the kind of thing you had to do early on for it to work. And very few Western countries did that. Australia and New Zealand did the UK didn't. The US did it in a half-assed way because Trump said in January, we have to stop people coming from China. And the media said racism, xenophobia. And it was done in a kind of botched way a couple of weeks too late with too many exceptions to work. And they didn't really track people who were coming in. So I think there was a way of doing it that that repressed the disease. And the current thinking, which I, I do think is right, is that it, it was a better idea just to cut this thing off, try to stop it getting started, than to let it spread into society and then do lockdowns. I'm certain that that was the right response. Of course, once you've done that repression strategy, the Chinese, of course, did it in their way. Although I think many people in the West idealized that by thinking that the lockdowns they did in China from late January were the right thing to do. I, I don't think that was the correct conclusion. At any event, they did repress it. But any country that successfully prevented large-scale infection now has to do vaccination on a larger scale than those countries that allowed a lot of natural infection for the obvious reason that the population of Australia or New Zealand or, or for that matter, China is largely a virgin population. There are very few people who have natural immunity. So you've got to vaccinate a huge proportion of people before you can reopen. And that, that's created its own set of problems for those East Asian and Australasian countries. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I think there probably is a link between small is beautiful, though, and paranoid, because partly about paranoia, and it is, in this case anyway, being able to focus on multiple risks at the same time. And smallness, particularly in a geopolitical context, encourages you to think about multiple risks at the same time because they objectively exist. I think that's right. One shouldn't attach too much importance to state structures and borders in a pandemic because the virus doesn't see those. Writing about the great 
pandemics of the Roman age, I initially thought, well, you had this enormous empire with very high levels of trade going on. Of course, it was vulnerable to pandemics. But then I got to the Black Death in the 1340s when Europe's completely fragmented and probably more fragmented than at any time in its history with lots of little statelets. And it still spreads tremendously rapidly through that politically fragmented Europe. So I, I think the temptation of political science is always to sort of sit there playing with political units. I'm not sure how illuminating that is, especially since, interestingly enough, the size of polities follows a power law too. We don't have an average state. We have a handful of really big ones and lots of ridiculous little ones. And and so much of these questions, many of these questions are not particularly fruitful. In the end, it's network structure that matters. In a pandemic, in any form of contagion, it's the thing itself, the pathogen or the meme, if we're talking about the internet, and the social network that it attacks. And that social network can be entirely borderless if you have an era of globalized travel of the sort that we had achieved by 2019, in which enormous numbers of people were flying very long distances every day, so that there were flights landing uh, several times a week from Wuhan in New York, in London, in San Francisco. When you allow a new pathogen into that globalized world, it doesn't really matter whether you are a little or big state, the pathogen doesn't care. Yeah, one of your themes across the book is that we tend to distinguish between natural disasters and the non-natural kind. But you want us to think that almost all disasters have a very strong non-natural human-made element, that they are all at some level political. This is really the key theme of the book. That's why the subtitle is The Politics of Catastrophe, because the distinction in some ways is a, is a false one. We want to believe that a pandemic's a natural disaster and a war is man-made. But in reality, the scale of the impact of COVID-19 or the Asian flu is really a function of how we collectively or our, our leaders make decisions. And even a volcanic eruption has a political character because it's not a disaster if a volcano erupts on an uninhabited island, but it is a disaster if, if you've built a city right next to it. And we have a strange habit as humans of building cities near volcanoes and fault lines and then rebuilding them after the eruptions. That's one of the things that I was kind of fascinated by, this tendency just to kind of carry on as if not too much has, has happened. So I think if one looks at this distinction, it ceases to be informative because it doesn't really explain the enormous differences in, in outcome that are part of the central theme of the book. I think even the natural disasters have this political construction put on them. And it's the decisions made before, during and after that determine how big a disaster is measured in terms of excess mortality. What about if it was the Yellowstone volcano, though? Surely there are some things where our, the human interaction with it is a very secondary issue. Yes, if, if an enormous supervolcanic eruption happened at Yellowstone or, or somewhere else, on a scale that we haven't seen during human history, there wouldn't be an awful lot that we could do about it. And we certainly wouldn't be talking about man-made climate change anymore because volcanic-made climate change would be entirely dominant. One of the things that's striking about the history of disaster in human history is that we haven't had any really big ones. I mean, asteroids have just missed us. We're in that sense quite a lucky species so far. 
So there are clearly some disasters about which you can do nothing. If there were a sudden change in sunspot activity of the sort that has happened in history, we would be in no position to do much about it. What we can do with our scientific knowledge is at least make preparations for the eventualities of suddenly increased volcanic activity. What strikes me all for that matter, a disastrous earthquake, I'm struck by the fact that we're probably not that well prepared for these scenarios. I say probably because one can't really be sure until the point of of contact. But my sense is that if there were to be a really big earthquake where I'm living here in California, of the sort that we haven't seen in more than a century, there would be utter pandemonium. And the problem of fires that's already very serious here because of all the combustible wood would be probably as bad as the immediate impact of the earthquake. We've only just created an alert system only in the last week or so that will send all Californians a text message if there's reason to believe the big one has happened. So my instinct is that we're probably about as well prepared for that disastrous scenario as we were for COVID-19. But you're right, clearly there's a category of super disaster, which is truly, truly exogenous truly something that we we can't be expected either to prepare for or to deal with well. And of course, an alien invasion would come into that category. We haven't had one of those, but I suppose it can't be ruled out entirely. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. What does it say about us that we do build settlements on fault lines and on the edge of volcanoes? I mean, it's a, you know, it's a striking feature of the human psyche, the human condition that we do this. Are we complacent? Are we is it about the power law thing that our imaginations are well geared towards mid-level events and actually we struggle with things that are only happen very, very rarely, but when they do, they're absolutely disastrous. And our sort of planning isn't geared around that. You know, our politics, democratic politics, is primarily about dealing with mid-level challenges. What does it say about us that we just keep doing that? I think there are a couple of reasons. I mean, one reason that we keep building cities near volcanoes and fault lines is that they have all kinds of appealing features apart from those geological risks, the terrific locations for trade, for example, or they're close to tremendous arable land. And that's part of the explanation. Another part of the explanation, as you suggested, is that we're just not very good cognitively at dealing with risks in the domain of uncertainty to which we can't really attach probabilities, especially when the disasters happen infrequently enough that it's sort of once a century. And as relatively few of us make a study of history other than in the most casual way, it's quite easy just to forget that there is this risk and that its its frequency is not once every thousand years. I think finally, and maybe most importantly in our time, the incentives for politicians to address long-run threats and randomly distributed disasters are not strong because If you want to really prepare California for the big one, you have to make all kinds of expensive investments in improving the buildings that people live in and work in. And that's expensive. And one of the things I learned from writing a very different kind of book, the biography of Henry Kissinger, was what he calls the problem of conjecture. And the problem of conjecture states that if you are a statesman, a decision maker, you have a choice between just doing the line of least resistance, doing as little as possible, or taking expensive measures for fear of some future disaster. And the problem is that if you do nothing and get lucky, then you win. If you successfully preempt disaster, or at least successfully prepare for disaster, 
you don't really get thanked for it. The payoffs are very asymmetrical. And so it's quite tempting, for, particularly for democratic leaders who maybe have a four or five year time horizon, not, not to worry about that expensive stuff. And this is the central problem that global warming has, has revealed, that it's one thing to make a speech about the terrors of climate change. It's another thing to do anything about it that's really going to meaningfully impact the, uh, the Earth's average temperatures. So I think that's a long-winded answer to your question. It gets us back to the fundamental problem that disasters are not things we are well set up to deal with. The question is whether we've got worse at it. And one of the more contrarian things I say in the book is that in some ways we have, despite our greater scientific knowledge. I was just going to push you on this question, because I think what I'm going to say sort of fits with what you've just said, and I'd be interested to see whether you agree, which is that we're not very good about thinking practically about risks. So what we do is we do two very different things, at least in the West, that we do two very different things, which on the one hand is simply to get on with doing the things that we want to do as if the risks from nature don't really exist. You know, your example of how life just carries on in California. And at the same time, though, in our imaginations, we have all kinds of apocalyptic fantasies, essentially an apocalyptic dreads. And then you finish the book with these different apocalyptic stories that have been told in science fiction over the last few decades. What we don't seem to be able to do, and I think that the way that we struggle with climate change does fit into this, is to be pragmatic about the subject. I think you're absolutely right. One of the oddities about human nature is that we're fascinated by the idea of the end of the world and catastrophic disaster. It's uh, all over popular culture. It's central to science fiction. I was fascinated by stories about people in New York in the early stages of COVID-19 watching the movie Contagion. And that sort of sums it up. There we are in a real pandemic watching a movie about a worse one. On the other hand, we don't seem able to think in a practical or pragmatic way about how to prepare better for such an eventuality. I think the fact that we imagine these things as much worse than they are paralyzes us. So there's a sort of sense of, well, I mean, the end of the world is coming in 12 years. I think it's now down to 10 years since uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez gave us 12. So, you know, what the hell? Might as well just get the gas guzzler. We're done anyway. And I think, therefore, part of the point of writing this book was to say, look, it's not the end of the world we really have to reckon with here. It's a series of really pretty disruptive changes that we're going to follow from rising average temperatures. And we should probably do something about that. The problem is, in the case of climate change, that what happens is we give speeches, we have grand gatherings, as the one in Glasgow will be, but the Chinese continue to build coal-burning power stations at such a clip that our efforts to reduce emissions really have no impact. And there's been a continued increase in emissions since the Paris, famous Paris Agreement. China accounts for 48% of the increase. So what are we going to do? The reason I end up writing about Cold War II at the end of the book is that we have a fundamental problem. If we, if we care about these issues, then we have to constrain China. If we can't constrain China, then we're not going to avert rising global temperatures and all that will follow in their train. So how then should we think about the risk of a war between the United States and China? Because for all the reasons you said, we find that really difficult, the scale of it on some level, the unlikeliness of it, but of course it's not that unlikely. And if it goes from cold to hot, it's apocalyptic on some scenarios. And yet politicians do take this kind of thing seriously, and we do tend to think that it's in their power to decide. How should, imaginatively, how should we be thinking about that prospect over the, the next 
few decades. A war is a much more clear and present danger than climate change. A major war, a big war, US-China type war, would be far more immediately disruptive than the relatively slow-burning problem of climate change. And we're much closer to such a war than I think most people appreciate. I've spent a lot of my career studying wars, including the two biggest wars. And the reason wars broke out in 1914 and 1939, the key reason was that the dominant power, which in those days was the British Empire, failed to deter the rising power, Germany, from taking a major strategic risk. We talked the talk, but we really weren't prepared to walk the walk in terms of conscription before 1914, rearmament before 1939. And I think the United States is well positioned to make the same mistake with China. Its commitments, verbal and otherwise, are global. It has a commitment to Taiwan, which has become more explicit under the Trump and now Biden administrations. But its capability of deterring China compared with, say, the 1990s has diminished drastically because of China's increased economic and military capability. You could sink a US aircraft carrier with a Chinese missile if you wanted to now. And so there's a really serious risk that the US gets itself into a position rather like Britain in 1914. The Chinese decide they're not really up to this. We can risk it. We can invade Taiwan. The Americans say, oh, hang on, we actually can't let that happen. And therefore, like Britain in 1914, they start from the weak position of having to scramble to recover lost ground. And you end up in a really big war. Now, the people who know about this stuff, like Jim Stavridis, who has a new book out about it, say that in that scenario, there would have to be American bombing of Chinese mainland targets to disable China's air capabilities. If that happened, Stavridis' expectation is you would likely escalate to nuclear weapons quite quickly. So that's that's a real imminent disaster, which I think could happen if there is going to be a crisis over Taiwan, could happen next year, could happen after the, the Winter Olympics in Beijing. And the question will be, does the Biden administration do what a great many democratic administrations have done all the way back to Woodrow Wilson, come in with a bold domestic agenda and end up in a really big war? Remember, that happened also to Roosevelt. It happened to Truman. It happened to, to Kennedy and Johnson in Vietnam. Or does the Biden administration essentially blink? And if your Secretary of State's called Blinken, the headline writers are waiting and simply say, okay, China, you are number one in the Indo-Pacific and you can have Taiwan without a fight. That's a very imminent disaster scenario in my mind. Is that the thing you think we should be currently most worried about? Yes. Wars, particularly wars involving one-party states, were the biggest cause of disaster in the 20th century. They really were, bigger than pandemics. And if we aren't careful, we're going to repeat those mistakes. And it's not only my view, it's also Graham Allison's view in his book, which he called Destined for War when he published it several years ago now. And I remember saying, Graham, are you sure you want to call it that? But he was right. He was right that we were heading for one of those classic incumbent power versus rising power collisions. And that, I think, is is really a scarier prospect than climate change, though I know we're supposed to think that climate change is the big one. Neil Ferguson's book is out now. It's called Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. Get it wherever you get your books from independent booksellers. Coming up on Talking Politics, I'm going to be talking to another historian, Linda Colley, about a different kind of history, the fascinating history of written constitutions. And we have one more episode, the final episode in our series about the future of the Union of the United Kingdom 
the big one, the one we haven't talked about yet, we'll be talking about England. Do join us for all that. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. And yet the resources, the capability to deter China, hang on, this is just hopeless. <laughs> this is like a little, oh. it's like a fractal version of the It is. One. This is the disaster that I knew would befall me. <laughs> I want to throw them bodily out of the house. The great mo- the moment was when the car alarm went off. I don't know if you caught that, but that was really a classic. <laughs> um, I'm going to have to, let me try and, could you please be quiet? <laughs>